Welcome to Season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This season is a little bit different. It's all about NATO. Yes, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With the help of media and defense experts, we'll be breaking down what NATO is all about. We'll be focusing on cyber attacks, decision-making, public policy, crisis management, and you know it wouldn't be media-minded if we didn't sprinkle in a little disinformation in the mix. This podcast is produced by Shata UK, the leading political and media literacy organization, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US mission to NATO. I'm your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shata UK, here to teach you more about global security through the lens of NATO. Let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us for Media Minded. Today, we have a very, very special uh, guest with us, Graham Stacey, or Sir Graham Stacey, should I say, who joined the European Leadership Network as a senior consulting fellow in November 2020. Sir Graham had a 39-year internationally focused military career as a UK Royal Air Force Regiment Officer with his final position being the Chief of Staff of NATO Transformation. Uh, Previous roles include the Deputy Commander of a NATO Joint Force Command, Commander and Administrator of the British Sovereign Base Areas in Cyprus and Senior Advisor to the US Central Command. Um, Talk about a uh, colourful and expansive career. Um, Graham, anything I missed out there? Um, probably lots, but probably a good thing you did, actually. So, no, that's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, well, thank you so much for joining us. We are also privileged to be joined by Ambassador Julianne Smith, the US permanent representative to NATO. Julie assumed the position in November 2021 after she served as a senior advisor to Secretary Blinken at the Department of State. Previously, she served as the director of the Asia and Geopolitics programs at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and as the acting National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President of the United States. Before her post at the White House, She served for three years as the Principal Director for European and NATO Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense in the Pentagon. In January 2012, she was awarded the Office of the Secretary of Defense Medal for Exceptional Public Service. One of the things that we often uh, forget about, you know, international organizations like NATO is we often hear about them in the news. You know, we hear about NATO, we hear about the European Union, we hear about the International Bank, but... Uh, or the World Bank rather, but we often never really go into depth about what these organizations actually do. And I'm sure quite a lot of our audience will have heard about what, you know, heard about NATO, heard the word, heard the acronym. Um, But what could you um, outline why NATO was created and what are NATO's core aims? So um, NATO was created, so NATO firstly is, it's worth unpacking the acronym. Um, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, a a treaty between countries that that bridge the North Atlantic. Um, It it was formed in 1949, and perhaps it's worth just taking ourselves back to that time. I mean, the the Second World War, you know, was but five, four years um, since it ended. Um, There was still quite a lot of um, um, destruction around Europe. Um, the economies of countries were, were very weak. They've been hugely damaged by, by the war. Uh, and, um, you know, as people were hoping for peace, um, the threat of the Soviet Union and the spread of communism started. Uh, and so initially 12 nations, uh, NATO started with 12 nations, got together. Uh, and, and really it was a case of, of working together um, to be prepared a- against a threat from communism and the Soviet Union. 
And the, the fundamental principle of it what was what we refer to, and you may hear sometimes, Article 5 of the treaty, the North Atlantic Treaty. And Article 5 stated that an attack against one would be considered as an attack against all. In other words, if, if anyone attacked any single NATO member, then the other 11 would come to their aid and defence. So it was about collective defence. Um, it, it was about consultation between the 12 nations. And it, quite frankly, was about burden sharing. No one nation thought they were strong enough to counter the Soviet Union. Um, and so that they, they burden shared. Now, within that, I mean, the, the, the nature was set up. Um, it was about safeguarding those freedoms of liberal democracy. Uh, and, and in fact, the, the original charter um, states that it will be founded on the principles of democracy, individual liberty and the rule of law. Um, but fundamentally, it's a defensive alliance. It's a military alliance, which, which was about countering a military threat. And that's what it's done to this day. Uh, and the 12 nations has now grown to 30 nations. That's amazing. And um, of course, you mentioned, you know, attack on, an attack on one and is an attack on all. Um, and for any that are obviously um, fans of the uh, Three Musketeers, it's that kind of idea of all for one and one for all almost. It, it is very similar. And, and yeah, exactly right. And, and in fact, the, the, some of that comradeship and chemistry between the nations it is probably not a million miles from that film. So it's actually a really good analogy. Um, and obviously you, you mentioned this, um, you know, the, the idea of liberal democracy or the freedoms that we, um, you know, sometimes take for granted and, and, and are born with um, to this day um, underpin or are fundamental um, for for NATO. Um, so how does NATO define democracy and why is it so important? Why is it so ingrained and linked to there? And how does NATO promote democracy across the world, or across its member states? I'm not sure NATO necessarily does define democracy. Um, I think it, it has a far greater sense of what it believes are democratic values. Right. Because, of course, there are, many, and I, there are many different forms of democracy. Um, you, you know, the democracy that the United States have, um, is, is democracy, but it, it looks quite different from that, which you might have in Italy or, or you might have in Germany or something. So so we tend to think of democratic values. And, it, it, and if I had to, so what do I believe or what, you, you know, my time in NATO, what were those democratic values? I, I mean, it is about the ability to have, you know, fair and open elections with free voting. It is about the ability for things like freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, individual liberties, um, it, it is about um, the rule of law and that rule of law applying to everyone equally, regardless of, of age, gender, race, sexuality or anything like that. It, it is those principles of, of democratic governments that, that NATO, um, it, NATO tries to be a guardian of. And, and I, you know, I would go back to an answer to the previous question. You know, NATO is a military alliance. You know, its job is not to spread democracy. Um, it works for governments, um, but it was founded by 12 democracies. And, and any organization will look to some degree like its founders. Um, and so it, it does encourage those democratic values um, and, and it will act on behalf of democratic nations. Um, but, but, but I, you know, I would not say that um, a mission of NATO explicitly is to go and spread democracy mm -hmm. um the mission of nato is defensive um and if our nations decide that part of that is encouraging democracy within other states then we will do so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and obviously you, you mentioned this quite interesting um point about you know what is democracy and, it, and you know you're quite right you know in italy the uk and the us i mean if we look at those three democracies they're all very fundamentally different um but it wouldn't be fair to say that then it's it's more about you know if we were to say that NATO guards anything it would be those principles because each of them are very different. I mean you know the UK is a, the US is a federal state you know the UK is a constitutional monarchy and obviously the Italy is kind of like a unitary um, unitary democracy. But um, each of them have this idea of you know free and fair elections. Each of them view freedom of speech as important. Obviously the different levels the U, the US being a bit more extreme in those cases. Um, but they all see freedom of speech, free and fair elections, the, the, the push towards meritocracy as being fundamental pillars of having a, a free democratic state. Um, so would you say be more those pillars that are what 
NATO is linked to than democracy itself. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and again, I you know go back to the origins. Mm. You know, this was a fear about the spread of communism and the spread of the Soviet Union, and and, and that was seen as you know very opposing values to the liberal democracies of the original NATO members. So so it, it was about protecting it, but but it but it's not you know again I, I don't want to be sort of overemphasizing it, but but NATO is a military alliance. You know, we, we don't have police forces. We, we don't, you know, we, we don't get out there and do electioneering. We, you know, you, you won't, you know, you don't hear people vote for NATO or anything like that. Um, but, but we are, but, but you're right. I mean, you know, embedded in NATO as those principles. And, and we uphold the value of the, of, of the now 30 nations. Mm-hmm. No, of course. And um, bringing it to kind of modern day, and obviously we're, we're living in the midst of a pandemic. Um I, I, I'm kind of, I want to say we're kind of at the back end of it, but I'm probably going to kick myself for saying that in a, in a couple of months time, but let's, let's be positive. We're starting the year, so let's be positive. Um, and obviously COVID-19 has inspired us to think about the, the, the kind of many threats that we face and, and the kind of society that we live in. And, and what do you think are the kind of three major or the, or the three biggest threats to democracy in the, in the case of NATO at the moment? Would you say? Again, uh, you know, a, a fantastic uh, question. And, uh, you know, in some ways, the easier answer would be to come up with a list of twenty. Um, but the, <laughs> selecting the three, but I, mean, and, and again, I wanted I'm to make it a little bit harder for you. You see, yeah, exactly. I'm going to approach this in a, in a slightly, perhaps, um, um, different way because I, I, I think I know where you're heading on this. But, but, but I, um, so, so I think the biggest threats to democracy are are, are, are organizations, people. Um, and other sort of institutions um, that that try and create division in society. Um, you, you know, I mean, it, part of I mean, part of democracy is that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. You know, we all vote together. We, we we end up with a common aim. That doesn't mean that you know I I don't have a you know a slightly different political view from my neighbour. But at the end of the day, we're all working to a, to a common aim. What once we start dividing societies. Whether it be on, on race or, or politics or, or gender or sexuality or something, you know that's where I think democracy starts breaking down because it, if it becomes us and them, hmm. you, you know, it, you, you know, the transition from from disliking to hate to sort of you know ethnic cleansing is is actually a very easy and slippery road to take. So, so the first thing I would say is is that you know an attempt to create divisions in society. Mm-hmm. The second threat to democracy for me is when we have a fundamental mistrust of governments and the institutions of government. Um, and, you know, you, you, you can see that in various places around the world. Um, and, you know, if, if people have a fundamental mistrust of their government or the institutions of government or the rule of law, then why would they vote? Why would they want to be part of that system? That they just you know go down another route from democracy, and then the last one I would say is 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 probably I describe it as disenfranchisement. You know, when people think that democracy no longer does them any good or it doesn't apply to them, I, and you know, you know, particularly for for this podcast or something. I mean, I I could understand even in this country why some young people might think that, you know, what's the point of voting? Because, you know, it's all decided by, you know, boring old people, they get the main vote, you know, we have very little say, you know, what's the point of turning up? And, and if people don't turn up and don't participate, then democracy fails. You know, when you get people voted in for a turnout of 10%, you know, that means that you only need just over 5% of the vote to get into power. I mean, that, that's not democracy as I understand it. Mm-hmm. But what causes that, I think, is the other interesting thing. Um, that if you take my, if you accept, and they are but three examples, but if you accept my three examples, then, you know, what, what causes that and what ignites that flame and, and pours fuel on it? And I think there is something about misinformation, disinformation, fake news. Um, people say, oh, it's social media. Um, Interesting, you go back in history, you know, there were similar debates when, you know, the first radio broadcasts were made, you know, during elections, people said, oh, this is it, radio, you know, elections are over because, you know, people's minds are being poisoned by the radio. Then the same again happened on television. Um, 
social media and, and the internet are different because of the speed and the reach they've got. Um, but I'm not sure that the problems are not in a similar vein. Um, and I think we do have to think very seriously about, you know, the influence that people have in terms of, you know, picking up stuff on, on I'm not going to name any platforms, but you can think of them. And, and you know, you, you, I'm sure you've been on there and, and looked at stuff and you think, God, I mean, no one surely in their right mind would believe that. But people do. So I'm joined now by um, Julie, who is uh, the ambassador or the US permanent representative to NATO. Um, hello, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to join you today. Um, so first of all, what are the biggest security threats facing NATO in the 21st century, would you say? Well, uh, obviously, at the top of the list right now is Russia. It is in the middle of a unprovoked and unprovoked and premeditated war that it started. So that is where the alliance is spending most of its time at the moment. We're very focused on doing a couple of things all at once. We are trying to move force posture, move forces, military forces into Eastern Europe to protect NATO allies that are feeling a little bit nervous at the moment, given current events. We're also trying to provide support to Ukraine, and that takes many forms. All allies are providing some sort of support. Um, it takes either the form of humanitarian support or lethal support in some cases. And then collectively, the transatlantic partners are coming together to apply pressure on Russia to try and get it to leave Ukraine and stop this war. Above and beyond Russia, we're looking, though, at all sorts of other challenges. The alliance looks at other actors. Increasingly, we've been looking at some non-state actors. Um, we've been looking at great powers, other great powers, such as China. China is now making its way into the conversation here at NATO headquarters. So thinking about what China's actions tell us about their efforts to divide Europe from within or to divide the transatlantic relationship. We're looking at terrorism. We've always looked at terrorism for many, many years um, as a threat to the alliance. And then I guess I would put a couple of other transnational challenges. I would add climate change to that. That's a key part of what we do here, thinking about how that impacts our national security, particularly in the Arctic, but not just in the Arctic. So it's a long list. I, I probably could go on at great length. I will spare you the details. But this is an alliance that focuses on many threats simultaneously which is which is amazing that you mentioned i mean obviously um for my generation and below you know seeing what's going on in the ukraine is is something almost unfathomable for for for, for um for a, you know a war in a war in europe essentially something that you know we've we've never experienced in our lifetime and and it's interesting you mentioned obviously climate change because we don't often associate you know nato with climate change is often seen as, as, as completely separate because it's, it's often seen as a non-conflict uh, related issue. But of course, as you say, you know, there, there's a lot of um, potential security concerns that may come from um, however much that issue, you know, carries on going down the road. Um, which kind of leads me on quite nicely to my next question, which is um, how has the geopolitical pressure points changed since, you know, the times of the Cold War? Um, in what ways are they potentially the same or, or, or different? That has, has it changed? Well, they're constantly evolving. And so for NATO, it's it's really gone through several evolutions. So we had the NATO that was in place during the Cold War and obviously addressing the threats that were stemming primarily from the Soviet Union uh, at that time. We had the moment during the 90s where the alliance was focused on conflicts in and around its borders. So the Balkans, the wars in the Balkans were the primary focus. We moved into another period um, after September 11th, where the alliance increasingly was looking at expeditionary operations in faraway places, not just in places like Afghanistan, but we were actually looking at things like counter piracy off the coast of Somalia. And so NATO took on um, a very different role after focusing on its own security for many, many decades. It started to look more broadly out into the world and think about things that it needed to address to ensure the safety and security of its of its citizens 
back in Europe and, and in North America. And now we find ourselves, um, kind of the great irony now is that we find ourselves coming back to kind of NATO's core mission at the moment, and that is to focus on deterrence and defense. We are in a moment at this alliance where we're focused deeply on protecting NATO member states from what's happening in Ukraine and from Russian aggression more broadly. Before the conflict in Ukraine even happened, we were focused on deterrence and defense in ways we hadn't for, for quite some time. So what that tells me about this alliance is that this alliance is agile, it's quite innovative, it has this ability to transform itself and ensure that it can in real time develop new strategies, new doctrines, new policies and tools to deal with everything now from conventional war and continuing to focus on those types of threats, but also cyber attacks or space or looking at emerging and disruptive technology. So, it's really a remarkable story in general uh, about this alliance, and it's why I'm so proud to be a part of, of this alliance uh, at this moment. Which brings me quite nicely on to, um, you know, what would you say are the kind of new challenges um, posed in the 21st century for NATO and for, for democracies? I mean, we mentioned disinformation, but I think it's, It'll be interesting to hear your take if that's if that's one and if that's one of the main ones or if there's more. I think. Well, I think I think there are more. I mean, I. I, I but I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think you and I are, you know, agreeing not certainly on the fact that many of these things aren't necessarily new challenges. But but the chan there's no doubt the challenges are evolving. Um, yeah. You, we used to have propaganda. I mean, you know, propaganda was a huge part of the Second World War, you know, pre-NATO. But I mean, the but, Nazi yeah. Germany used it. I yeah, mean, uh, incredibly well in, yeah, in uh, where they were manipulated people. Yeah, abs absolutely. So, so you know, it, it's it, it, it has advanced. It's evolved. All the things you say. So, I, I, you know, I think that is a challenge. I mean, there are new technologies, and, and you know, cyber is is a classic example of mm -hmm. one of those. I mean, people may have heard of things like hypersonic weapons missiles that travel so fast that they're, they're almost impossible to intercept and things like that. Um, I, how is NATO responding? Um, I mean, the first is, is, is NATO, you know, is an adaptive, a learning and a transforming organization. And as you said very kindly in my bio at the intro, um, the, you know, I, I used to be chief of staff of NATO Transformation, which is a, which is a complete organization just dedicated to trying to keep NATO militarily and in terms of security on the on the front line. Um, there's a lot more emphasis now than there has been over the last 10, 15 years on resilience of nations. Um, and what do I mean by that? It, it, it's, you know, it's all very well being able to go and fight a battle, mm -hmm. but our individual nations need to be able to need to be able to deal with things like cyber attacks with, you know, energy restrictions and things like that. I, I used to liken it when I was in NATO to you know, you can be a world-class boxer, you can have the best punch in the world, but if you've got a glass jaw and you fall over at the first punch, then you're really not going to win. Um, so we need that resilience. And then maintaining, and this might sound a strange concept, but maintaining interoperability. Um, I mean, the trick question I would always give people is how many tanks does NATO own? And the answer is none. It's the NATO member states that own the tanks. Um, but they've all got to be able to operate together. They've got to be able to speak together and they've got to be able to use the same fuel. They've got to be able to use the same ammunition. And it's that sort of robust resilience in terms of operating um, that allows us to adapt uh, and allows us to you know, keep ahead of, of the, the threats as they evolve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. And, it's, and um, you know, being part of that, um, what was it, NATO transformation, um, it's almost like uh, trying to predict what what the future world of conflict looks like, which is a uh, um, hell of a task in a lot of ways. Uh, it is. And, and if anyone wants to go online at some point, um, there is a NATO document called Strategic Foresight Analysis, the SFA, the Strategic Foresight Analysis. It, it's available out there. And that's exactly it. It's looking at the, the evolving nature of conflict and the challenges ahead. Wow. 
Wow. And um, speaking of conflicts, you were deployed, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, um, with NATO to to Bosnia. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that conflict? Um, I, I can. I, I can. I mean, just for for clarification, um, I actually um, I was in Bosnia. Um, NATO were there. Um, I was actually working um, for Carl Bildt, who was the high representative, the, the man who was charged with rebuilding Bosnia after the conflict. Oh, wow. I, I was working for, for him on his staff at the time. But one of my jobs was liaising with with um, with NATO forces on the ground. Um, so, so Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, again, it, you know, People of a certain generation, you know, will will remember this. Others have no idea. Um, th- there was a country, a, a very large country called Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, um, which was held together by many, many years by us. I just remember it. Just at the beginning of uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, I just remember um, Yugoslavia. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the reason I said that though is because I said to someone the other day. Uh, so clearly younger than you, but. Yeah, something about Yugoslavia, and they looked at me and said, "Where is that?" Um, and and they so former Yugoslavia, um, where when the when the autocratic rule ended, um, it started to fragment. Um, various bits of it, like Croatia, for instance, um, got their independence very quickly. Um, in Bosnia, uh, Bosnia is an interesting country because it's been at the crossroads of the east and west and north and south for many many years. Mm-hmm. And Bosnia had a had a had a mix, a, a very sort of almost equal mix of of Bosniaks who were Muslims, um, Bosnian Croats who were Catholic, and Bosnian Serbs who were Orthodox. And the simple version is that they could not decide how and who was going to rule the country, and ended up fighting over it. Firstly, two against one, and then latterly, all three against each other. Um, and it was a horrible, bloody, um, civilian casualty orientated war, which was full of genocide and full of ethnic cleansing because the Serbs didn't want Muslims or Croats in their villages and towns and vice versa. All, all three um, were doing it. Um, and so it was a very, very nasty four years of conflict, um, which was finally um, drawn to a conclusion in '95, I believe. Um, and we set about rebuilding the country. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, yeah, that was, I, I know from, you know, history lessons that whenever you talk about a um, really horrific and, and quite tragic conflict in Europe, um, aside from obviously the, the two world wars, um, the, the, the conflict in Bosnia tends to always be one kind of prime example of, you know, as you say, of, of genocide from almost all sides. Um, and just the horrific level of, of of civilian casualties that just that just came with it was 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 astronomical, um, and obviously you know when, when we're looking at conflict resolution or, or intervening in conflict in, in the case of NATO, um, you know the ideal is obviously the military intervention was coming last or, or almost being like the kind of last resort. Um, how would you say that you that you know that you should combine military and diplomatic interventions? Um, within, say, this conflict or conflicts in general? Like, how can you see the kind of military side of NATO and the diplomatic side or the public diplomacy side of NATO kind of going hand in hand? Well, well firstly, I, I mean, the, the, they absolutely must go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I, the great shame is sometimes they don't, um, which is always uh, deeply worrying. I mean, the, the best way I would describe it is, is that the role of the military is to um, create security and stability and buy time for the other diplomatic efforts and to take effect. Um, because, you know, you know if, if people are being shot at, if people can't move, um, if people are living in constant fear, then, then clearly they're, they're not going to be that bothered about, you know, someone telling you about, you know, individual rights and things. So, so it is about creating the conditions for the other arms of government and, and indeed NGOs and international organizations um, to do what they do best. Um, and, and, and that does require a, a degree of, of, of cooperation. Um, and, you know, one of in past jobs, I, I've worked hard to, to try and, you know, actually make that work. And, and, 
you know, military organizations are, are really good at what they do. Um, but, but, but sometimes we, you know, we forget that, you know, we spend a lot of time planning. Um, you know, when I was at the United States Central Command, um, you know, our planning cell was several hundred people large, um, which is great. Um, but then when you meet the diplomats on the field, it's normally, you know, one man and a dog with a scrap of paper and a pencil. Um, and so you've got to you've got to accommodate each other mm -hmm. and, and you've got to understand, um, you know, each other's strengths, each other's weaknesses, each other's limitations. And to be honest, I think um, you've got to keep in your appropriate lane. And, you know, the military job, like I say, is security, stability and buying time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very easy to get sucked into other things. And some of them are, are less contentious in my mind. I mean, quite often um, the military will be involved with um, assisting in the development of police forces. Um, and that's fine as a short-term measure. Um, but, but there is a big difference between policing and being a military officer. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got to remember that and, and stick to what we're good at. So coordination, practice, trust, establishing trust, um, getting to know each other, avoiding surprises, and re remembering why you're there um, and communicating properly, I, I would say. Um, when it works, it's really, really powerful. Uh, and, it, and it's almost a sort of, it, it's an exciting pleasure to be part of. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it takes a bit of time to get it working sometimes. Of course, and you know, having those, having <coughs> those two, um... Uh, principles or those two interventions marry up sometimes can be can be really really difficult and it's interesting you, you know you, it's almost like the military option is the is the kind of delay tactic of like let's let's get a situation into a relatively controlled state whilst the diplomatic which you know the diplomacy option which is which is always going to take potentially longer and and be a lot more complicated because you are in in certain situations you know dealing with people that are diametrically opposed to each other and trying to find a, a established solution can often take a, a lot longer um and within that you know you, you've you've had a very a very distinguished career and operated in a variety of different um theaters and areas um how would you say do we effectively embed democratic principles in you know regimes or in areas where um you know they're diametrically opposed to the principles of democracy some would say um, hypothetically, um, is that even something that that is 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 possible? I mean, uh, the one of the, I guess, more contentious examples, if I may, would be the 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 situation in Afghanistan, for instance. Yeah, and and so, so I, I'll answer that in 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 two. I mean, firstly, I'll go back to the the the, the fundamental point. Mm -hmm. um, reiterate that I've made that that, and you you've just agreed. You know, you know, I mean the military forces there are about stability, security, and buying time. Uh, I, and I, I think the, you know, the question that history should ask itself occasionally was, was the best use made of buying that time? And, yeah. and when you think that, you know, you know, buying time isn't going to a, you know, corner shop and paying a couple of pounds, you know, buying time is blood and treasure it's dead people, it's badly injured young men, young women. I mean, that's a sacrifice that was made by militaries and the British military, um, you know, in order to buy that time. Um, so that's the first point I'd say. Second point I'd say is that, you know, one thing you can't do, I mean, you, you, you can't impose democracy at, at gunpoint. I mean, it almost, it's an oxymoron in itself in that. No, of course, I mean, it's, um, it's so, the exact opposite of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so it is about encouragement. It's about education. It, it's about um, prepare, being prepared to see that your model of democracy might not be you know, optimised for that situation where you are. So again, it goes back to principles and things. Um, the, the military does have a role to play um, because I, I, I think the, the, the relationship between militaries, societies and governments is very important in a democracy. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I, I, I am absolutely live with my and would defend passionately is, you know, civil government control over the military. 
um, you, you know, you know, the military is at the end of the day, you know, it, it is a unique organization in that it delivers state sponsored violence. Mm -hmm. um, it should not be up to the military commanders when, where and how that is used. It's got to be up to the politicians, the people of that country. And so reinforcing that in the militaries, they, they, like for, for instance, when we were retraining the Afghan or Iraqi military, you know, we spent a lot of time on the relationship between civilian government and the military and, and who was in charge, i.e. the government. We spent a lot of time on rule of law, you know, that the rule of law applies as much to the military as it does to any other civilian. They're not above the law. Um, they don't have laws of their own or anything like that. And those those are important because they are really good building blocks in a democratic society. And because you know, many of us have heard. I mean, that happens in the world still now. It, it, you know, when militaries get out of hand, and you have a military coup, and the militaries think they can run the country better than the civilian organisations or the civilian governments can. You know, again, that, that the complete opposite of a democratic process. So, so, so we, we we do work hard at that, and some of that is done in country. Um, but NATO also has some superb education establishments. Um, it's got its own schools, uh, a big one in Oberammergau in Germany, um, where we, we take military NCOs and officers and, and train them in you know, rule of law, law of armed conflict, looking after civilians, civilian control. And it's effectively got its own university, the NATO Defence College in Rome. And again, we take the senior officers and, and do the same sort of uh, training there so so we have a part to play um but but actually you, you know showing governments and showing people how democracy might be there to their advantage it is really the lane of the governments and the people themselves the civil societies themselves um the militaries create the conditions for that to happen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and obviously you know the military at the end of the day is 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 there almost as a protective instruments where you, you, you know, you're protecting whatever you end up creating in your country whatever belief systems you know whatever whatever philosophy and, and and economic and cultural and whatever setup you know the military is there essentially meant to be there to protect it and um it goes back to that idea of what you mentioned about trust and distrust of institutions right where um in the uk i think for the for the most part most people would turn around you know if you ever said them oh are you ever worried about the british army doing you know launching a coup against the government most people kind of laugh at you and say no of course not you know it's, it's not something that ever comes to mind um and that is because there is that trust and understanding between the 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 you know the, the, the military in the uk and obviously the government and who's in charge and all of those kind of things have been built over a long long period of time where it's just not even a, a question it's not even a it's not even a, a discussion but obviously as you say you know other countries have different setups and that um needs to be potentially either um uh, talked about or educated or learnt about as you say um and if you don't have that or if you don't have that boundary if you don't have that understanding between civilians the government and the military then you start to have these kind of breakdowns in in trust between these these three groups and that can create a lot of a lot of tension as you say and military coups i know there was um one in thailand for example not too not too many years ago um so they do happen very much around the world because of course the the army holds um ultimate power in a lot of ways um, when it comes to physical power. Absolutely. I mean, a complete monopoly of it, if we're honest about it. So, I mean, in terms of the, the, the larger oh, yeah. scale. So, yeah. Um, so, so going into, um, obviously, NATO in the context of when it was when it was created. I mean, obviously, you mentioned, you know, that it was created in the context of the Cold War and this kind of big bastion, you know, standing up against this this big um, group or, or, you know, the, the Soviet Union and, and its allies. Um but obviously, the Soviet Union, since its, since its dissolvement and and so forth, um, you know, that kind of big, for lack of a better term, enemy or, or competition, as it were, doesn't really exist anymore. Um, how has this changed NATO's role, or, or has it really? Yeah, I mean, I, I think NATO NATO has continued and will continue to evolve mm -hmm. as the situation changed. I, and, and and you're absolutely right. Um, the you know in the early days and, and certainly when I first joined the military you know it was all about the Soviet Union it was all about you know large-scale conflict across mm -hmm. you know Germany and and the rest of Europe so um, and, and that probably I, I mean if you look at NATO now 
Russia hasn't gone away, and you've just got to look at the newspapers over the last couple of, of weeks and months or, or study what's going on around Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, that threat, um, especially perhaps to the larger NATO um, from not the Soviet Union, but now Russia, um, it, it is still um, a, a real possibility. So, and I would put that into, you know, collective defense. That goes back to the, the three musketeers, as you said, you know, attack against one is an attack against all, and it's collective defense against the, the big enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the thing that changed over the and that still exists. The thing that changed over the years, I think, was was a, a realization that um, you know we live in a global world, uh, and you know whether we like it or not, um, you know what what happens in Africa or what happens in the Middle East or, or somewhere, you know, it is likely to have consequences across the whole globe. Um, that might be energy supplies, it might be food supplies, it might be migrants and refugees. Um, it, it might just be disruption of international trade or something. And, and so you know, NATO adopted a second mission of, of crisis management, as we called it. And, and that, that's the sort of intervention, the peacekeeping operations, the attempt at, 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 um, at, at creating stability in, in a war-torn area or, or an area of, of you know, imminent uh, conflict. Um, and then the last thing, you know, NATO evolved to doing was, and, and this is my sort of description of it, I'm not saying it's technically correct, was, you know, people started to realise, well, why are we waiting for a crisis to happen? You know, why don't we try and prevent crisis? Uh, and so we, we, we ended up with a third pillar of what we would call cooperative security. And, and that's working with partners across the globe. And NATO has, you know, partners, you know, Japan is a, is a partner of NATO. Um, you couldn't get much further across the globe and, and working with partners across the globe um, to help them with their understand their defense and security needs provide stabilization in some cases um, in, in the sort of in, in you know places like Georgia and things um, provide training and provide help and provide education and so you know between those three tasks of cooperative security prevent the crisis you know, crisis management, or back to the old style collective defense. I mean, I mean that that pretty much covers the gambit. I think it's probably fair to say that you know these are almost like three levers. You know, they they, they each move up and down independently. Um, you know, when NATO was in Afghanistan, you know, a lot of emphasis, I I guess you would say, was on the crisis management bit. Mm -hmm. um, over the last couple of um, years. That that's sort of subdued quite a lot, uh, and then with you know, Russia, with concerns about competition with China, that the 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 collective defence perhaps lever is is rising up a bit. But mm -hmm. but fundamentally, those are the three areas. Um, and, and what it means, as I think, is that that for the thirty nations involved, you know, NATO is as relevant and important today um, as it was in nineteen forty nine. Mm -hmm. yeah no of course and it obviously it's it's always that idea of you know staying relevant because uh, you know some people would would see it as you know the soviet union disappearing means that technically nato doesn't have this big enemy therefore is it still relevant but like you say you know with all these different elements coming in and um you know the kind of realization that we very much live in a and it sounds a bit strange to say but a global world you know it isn't just you know east versus west north asia and and Eastern Europe versus versus the Western Europe and North America, like there is a whole other part of the world that we that you kind of quite acknowledge and, and see that actually that can affect us. Um, do you feel like that was a hard lesson to learn? Like when when obviously the Soviet Union, you know, disintegrated and the Soviet Union broke apart. Um, do do you feel like it was a hard lesson for 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 people within NATO or for NATO itself to be like actually that you know Russia is still there? It's had a bit of a rebrand, but it's still very much there. But there's also this whole other part of the globe that, you know, we, we should potentially pay attention to. Um, or was it quite a smooth transition from kind of this us versus them to understanding there is a whole globe of potential opportunities, partners, etc., but also possible threats? I, I think it's more more of an evolution. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, Russia is a Russia is a very interesting one because mm. seven or eight years ago, um, you know, a major 
aim of NATO was closer cooperation um, with Russia. I mean, one of my first jobs, when I... One of my previous jobs, I don't think you mentioned, oh, you did, no. My first, one of my first tasks when I was the deputy commander of Joint Force Command, NATO Joint Force Commander Brunson, um, was to, excuse me, <coughs> was to host a, a major Russian visit, a, a three-star Russian visit um, to the headquarters. Uh, and How was that? This, that must have been amazing. It, it was great. And, and this entourage of, 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 you know, Russian generals arrived. Um, the main one was 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 rather tall. Um, I'm not quite as tall. Um, he also <laughs> had the classic Russian hat that went up another sort of you know seven inches or so. So you know, he looked about you know two foot taller than me, which I'm sure was quite deliberate. I mean, in terms of <laughs> you know their photo opportunity, but but we got on really well. And we had a long chat about, you know, the different ways we operate, what NATO does, what Russia is doing. And I think at that point, there was a real sense, um, you know, Russia had a mission in NATO. Um, We had, you know, Russian generals in Brussels with us. Um, um, There there was a real air of optimism that, that, you know, ultimately, you know, Russia was going to be a, a close partner to NATO. Um, and then, you know, things came off the rails and, and you know, post Crimea and their invasion of Crimea, that became an impossibility. And, and here we are today with, you know, a crisis manufactured over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, it, it, it hasn't been a, a, a smooth sort of, you know, Soviet Union collapsed and, and Russia became the sort of bad guy instead. I think there was a period of real optimism when we thought Russia might actually be a a very close and productive member or, or, or of the sort of, um, you know, major economies of the world. Why do you uh, think that was that U-turn in the end? So I, I will give a personal view, um, if, if that's okay. Yeah, no, of course. It, it, it's not a, I, I think, I mean, you know, Russia, um, Russia's got a long memory uh, and Russia has gone, um, has gone through, you know, a number of major invasions into Russia. Um, Napoleon almost got to Moscow, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and Hitler almost got to Moscow. Um, and, and in both cases, um, distance, geography, and the weather defeated them. Uh, and so, you know, deep down in, in Russian sort of security, it, it is that you know distance and geography and ultimately the weather as well is good and the problem was as 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 nato as it absolutely it was never in you know this is not a threat against russia but but nato has expanded and and you know poland and and romania and bulgaria and estonia and latvia and lithuania are all now nato members that puts the blue line a lot closer to moscow um, and, and I think, you know, that's that deep down, that has always worried the Russians completely irrationally because NATO is a defensive alliance. And but but that does that does worry them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth in all that. And obviously we I think we sometimes underestimate how important history is in in how it shapes um, people's decisions, how it shapes governments, how it shapes, you know, the way we act, because, you know, you are right. I mean in russia's case the weather and the distance has been its saving grace a number of times and you know with the exception of poland which then got carved up just before the war um all those countries you mentioned were of course part of the soviet union so the 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 land mass that they had between um western europe and 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 moscow was actually a lot a lot larger um so you know I'm, i'm sure that must that must play a part and obviously um after the um, collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, Russia wasn't seen as the as the the the, the superpower in the same way that the Soviet Union was. So there's always um, there's always that chase for greatness. I mean, you can you can always see that comparison with um, uh, you know Mussolini's Italy of trying to get back the glories of Rome. I mean, Italy's got to look a little a little longer in its history to uh, <laughs> to find itself being a uh, being a superpower. But hey, each their own.
so what would you see the future of, of NATO being, um, considering the way that, that conflicts are evolving? Well, I see an alliance that is resilient and in this moment is showcasing tremendous unity and, and resolve. I see an alliance that has the ability to adapt and adjust to an evolving security environment. We will uh, continue to focus on these future challenges. We have a long list of things, kind of an agenda that we've sketched out for ourselves. It's, it's called the NATO 2030 agenda. And if you look at the document that we've produced, you can read it online. Um, you'll see that we have a plan to really address everything from emerging and disruptive technologies to cyber, to conventional military threats, um, to some of the influence operations that you see, efforts to divide our societies. So it's, it's a pretty robust agenda for the future. And I'm confident that when we have the summit, there's gonna be a NATO summit in Madrid this summer. I think we're gonna be laying out a, a pretty clear agenda for, for the next decade or so. We'll also be drafting what's called the strategic concept here at NATO, the new kind of strategic guidepost, the, the leading light for this for this um, alliance and that document will provide us with a vision for the future so i i feel good about nato's future i i feel again the unity that we've showcased in recent days and weeks will continue to carry us through and that we all possess the determination and know-how to protect those values that that we hold dear also, I mean, you mentioned, you know, that, that, that irrational fear of Russia being invaded, but I just don't, I mean, call me ignorant maybe, but I just don't see those kind of traditional wars really ever happening again in that kind of scale. Um, and probably murder the world 10 times over if nations went to all out total war against each other, considering the firepower that nations have now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, um, you know, nothing would please me more than, than, you know, NATO to be out of business. Um, and peace and prosperity and happiness break out everywhere. Um, but, but I'm not sure I can see it at the any time in the near future. In fact, I mean, the world is becoming a more... In many I was going to say, it's probably complex. doing the opposite way. Don't it? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's becoming a more complex, more dangerous, um, <coughs> more um, congested place. So, and, and of course, um, you know, some of the other threats we face, um, you know, people are, are quite rightly worried um about climate change mm. um but but you know don't be under other any misapprehension you know climate change can and will trigger wars um because as people run out of of food as people run out of places to live as people run out of water as people run out of energy um then you, you know they are going to move and and that inevitably, I think, will either lead to conflict or there'll be conflict about getting the vital resources like water. So, so, so you know, I think the, the world is will face a period of in, increased um, conflict, I'm afraid. Um, so, so NATO absolutely ha has, has a definite role to play. I, I mean, I, you know, the, the climate change is, and one of my other roles is I'm, I'm involved with climate change. So the you know, I, I do not underestimate the, the impact of, of climate change, um, but but that would look like a, a bad day um, as opposed to Armageddon um, compared to a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of what NATO must continue to do and has done is be prepared to defend the 30 countries, um, but also be a strong advocate for nuclear reduction, for arms control, um, for confidence building measures, for, 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 for just trying to take the risk uh, out of, of some of this that's going on. And, and you know, in my personal um, side, you know, that's why I've been really pleased to, to move on and, and do work now with the European Leadership Network, because that is all about trying to reduce the nuclear risk in the Euro-Atlantic region. 
Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, you know, NATO will still be relevant. Um, you know, NATO has got to be able to to defend and deter. Um, you know, we've got to prevent war. We've got to find ways to negotiate out of conflict, um, and we've got to find ways to to produce, you know, stability, um, perhaps increase equality around the globe, and and take away some of these issues that are going to cause those conflicts. Mm -hmm. So, so and, and NATO, you, you know, it is, you know, the most successful military alliance in history in terms of of the duration of it. You know, it's gone since 1949. People have predicted its its demise many times, but it's still here, stronger than ever. Um, it, 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 it's relevant. Um, it makes a difference. Um, it it helps makes the, makes the world a safer place, uh, and that seems like a pretty good uh, um, day's work to me. So, um, it, it it's there. The future is is I, I don't want to say the future is bright because you know, like I say, I wish it wasn't necessary. Um, nature is necessary and i have no doubt it will continue to mm -hmm. to live up to its task and and you know do what it must do um for the foreseeable future mm -hmm. yeah no definitely i mean it's um that 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 line you said about you know nato uh, not nato sorry uh about climate change um you know triggering conflict i mean if this was if this was a film that would be the that would be the starting that would be the title wouldn't it that's it's 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 a reality I think that none of us want to admit, and I think we're still in the position where we, where we think we can, or at least you know a lot of people believe we can, kind of stave away from that, from that tragic potential reality. But of course, as we get closer and as inaction continues to potentially, you know, occur in certain in certain, in certain uh, parts of our lives, um, we you know slowly go towards that reality of you know parts of the world may become unlivable. And that's going to create mass migration. And every time there is mass migration, there's always going to be conflict, whether it be internal um, between peoples, whether it's, it, you know, between between countries for resource, you know, all of these kind of things are things that, um, unfortunately, uh, whether we like to admit them or not, and whether we're at the moment kind of pushing it at the back of our mind, being like, that's, that's tomorrow's problem. Let's let's focus on the potential um, solution for now is, is an issue that someone's got to deal with. Um, just as a, a final thought, um, would you want people to know about NATO that doesn't get said often enough? What would be the kind of one thing? So, so I yeah. If there's one it's thing. Another interesting one. I, and again, th this might be a, a slightly, slightly odd answer, but, but, but one of the things... Love odd that, answers. One of the things that has, has surprised me um, over the years, mm. um, it, 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 I have had senior British politicians and American politicians, amongst others, in fact, and I believe German politicians, um, who, who've all said to me, you know, quite aggressively, you know, why doesn't NATO do X, Y, or Z? You know, why isn't NATO fixing this? And I, and I had to sort of take a step back and say, but you are NATO, <laughs> you know, NATO is, is, is just a, it's just a military arm of an alliance between you 30 governments. You know, there's no general in NATO can decide to go and invade somewhere that the only people that can do that or spread peace or, or, or do anything. The only people that can do that are the politicians of the 30 nations. So, you know, when you say to me, why isn't NATO doing something, then, you know, you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, you know, why are you not doing something? Because you control NATO. NATO is one of your tools and your armory. So, and I guess my message, slightly, you know, um, slightly odd message, but it goes back to democracy and things. It, it is, what do I want people to know about NATO? I, I want people to realize that, you know, they are NATO. You know, NATO belongs to them. NATO isn't this sort of third party, you know, tucked away over there in Brussels somewhere that does things independently. Um, if you like what NATO does, then, you know, let it be known. If, if you don't like what NATO does, then, you know, use your right to vote uh, and, you know, influence the government. So because, you know, NATO stands up for you and tries to reflect your values, your wishes, your desires and your ambitions. Um, and, you know, if that's not happening, then, 
then you know it's not necessarily NATO's fault. Um, perhaps we've all got to realize that you know we've got a we we've got a stake in this organization. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a really powerful point to end on, isn't it? Because it's it is that idea of quite often I feel like we and, and you see this within our, within our democracies, say in the UK or in the US, that often you talk about the government or, or or our society and us, you know, us versus them. When in reality, of course in a democracy at least you are the government like you are a part of the government so if you you know if the government's not doing enough about say x thing um use your democratic right to vote to change um the people so that they they, they will act on on said thing or you know there's there's a myriad of different ways that we can all get involved and and um you know an organization like nate in, in terms of member states is very much the same thing where you are it like you are a part of it so if you don't like what it does or if you want it to change or if you want our government to change then then we're lucky enough to be in a position to actually collectively shape it and and, and push it in a direction that we want it to go if if enough people obviously agree with you um, and, and, I, and if i could just say and I, of course I know time goes but but you know i i again once again i i agree 100 percent with what you say and you know we, we've talked quite a lot about democracy and democratic democratic rights and things um over the last hour I, I mean you know when i was in afghanistan and afghanistan is an interesting case because the taliban are back in power mm. um i mean I, i'd love to that, talk about afghanistan for ages yeah, but probably not that, for... oh what a waste of time that was but <laughs> but but the good news is that you know afghanistan is a very very young population um, you know, well over half the people in Afghanistan weren't even born when the Taliban were less were last in power, and so all they have ever known is the freedoms, um, the relative freedoms and the relative democracy that there was between in the twenty years between the Taliban rules. Um, you know that that's in their DNA now. Um, they won't forget that, and so you know the the the. the the ground setting, the, the foundations for a better society are there. But but the point I was going to make as maybe a final point is that, you know, in Afghanistan, I was involved with, with a couple of the elections. You know, people traveled for three days by bus over some of the worst roads in the world to vote. You know, in South Africa, people queued for nearly 24 hours in baking sunshine and pouring rain to vote. You know, we look out the window and say, oh, God, it's a bit damp. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> I, I mean, we've lost the plot. I mean, you know, and it goes back to what you say. And, and I know why and how. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got two children. I've got two young adults. And, and I, you know, talk to them. And they, they feel pretty pissed off with the whole political system here. Um, I, I get that and I understand it. But, but the only way we're going to change it is if people vote, if people use that democratic right mm -hmm. and make a difference and change it. So so next time it's a voting day and if it's a bit damp outside or it's a bit grey or cold, then you know just remember people around the world die for the right to do mm -hmm. what you have the freedoms to do. So go and do it. considering what we're seeing in the world that uh, you know the, the kind of questioning of of nato's existence or you know nato's relevance i think has, has kind of gone away just because of just turn on the news and you can see why we have this kind of partnership um considering that the uh audience for for for, for this podcast are going to be um primarily young people and young professionals i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you one final question which is um if someone were to want to enter the diplomatic service such as yourself um what advice would you would you give um, the young person that wanted to follow in that those kind of footsteps? Well, here's the good news: uh, if you want to enter the field of foreign policy or national security, there's many many different paths in. Um, so people come to this field with journalism experience, public policy experience, academic degrees and credentials in international relations, sometimes private sector experience. 
So I, I, I always encourage people to follow what, what gets them out of bed in the morning and pursue opportunities and careers that inspire them. If there's somebody who's determined to work in the area of foreign policy, um, I think you look for opportunities early on through internships, through those early entry level positions that give you a chance to shadow someone in an organization that you're interested in. Um, so it might be NATO, it might be the European Union, maybe it's your own national government, maybe it's a think tank or your parliament, um, but there's so many different paths in. It's not like training to be a surgeon or, or perhaps an engineer yeah. where there's certain steps that, you know, I, I think people bring many different talents to the field of foreign policy. There's the analysis piece, there's good writing, there's leadership, there's management, foreign languages, experience abroad. So the good news is that, that if you're interested in this, you can find your path in. It doesn't have to follow one trajectory. So um, yeah, take risks, take chances, go abroad, seek out those unusual opportunities, and I'm sure you'll find your way in before you know it. Thank you for listening to Season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shata UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shata UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts fixed. This podcast is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Mission to NATO. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.